CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Psychologist who view her more vulnerable, lovely side had always talked about her need for love. She was indeed born in an orphanage. Her mother had had mental problems, a deeply insecure woman. Love me, love me, prove my worth, make love to me, tell me I'm worth it, tell me you love me, just all the time. Uh, she's someone who was able to take the pain that she had in her life. She was an orphan, she was abandoned, she was molested as a child. Uh, she had all kinds of insecurities. You see, I, I was brought up, I think, differently than the average American child. Because, no, but the average American child sort of, you know, like, to be happy, you know. To be happy, that's, the, that's it. Gee, happiness wasn't anything I ever took for granted. Hello and welcome to Chapter 2 of The Killing of Marilyn Monroe. I'm your host, Jackie Moran. In this chapter, we will examine how the woman born as Norma Jean Mortensen was rejected by those closest to her and dreamed of escaping her life of foster homes, orphanages, and repeated sexual abuse. As a woman, Marilyn Monroe was the most glamorous star the world had ever seen. But as a girl, Norma Jean had the most dysfunctional of childhoods. We will discover the effect that tough upbringing had on Marilyn's view of men and how that was to resonate on all her later relationships, including with the first husband that history has mostly forgotten. There's a lot of people that come from backgrounds that are unhappy and they can overcome it. But I think that if you're exceptionally sensitive, it's much more difficult to overcome a background where you never felt you belonged uh, and you always felt as an outsider. The woman we know as Marilyn Monroe was born on June 1st, 1926 at the Los Angeles County Hospital. The daughter of Gladys Pearl Baker and, according to her birth certificate at least, Martin Edward Mortensen. Martin and Gladys were already separated by the time Norma Jean was born, and the true identity of her biological father was never definitively established. If Marilyn never knew her father, it seems she barely had a relationship with her mother either. And for the first years of her life, the girl who would go on to become the most desired woman in the world was initially unwanted. Here's entertainment journalist and author of Marilyn Monroe, The Private Life of a Public Icon, Charles Casillo. 
She was born illegitimately to be born a bastard in 1926 was you're starting off damaged. You know, you're starting off unwanted by society. You're starting off judged. So from the moment she took her first breath, she was an undesirable or an outsider in society. On top of that, her mom was mentally unstable. So Norma Jean was put into foster care as, you know, a few week old infant. At first, Gladys kept up a fairly regular contact with her daughter, visiting at least each weekend. But when Norma Jean was just eight years old, Gladys suffered a full mental breakdown, was admitted to the hospital and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Mother and daughter barely saw each other again for the rest of Marilyn's life. Marilyn later remembered her mom in this candid lost interview. I never lived with my mother. As you know, my mother had mental disturbances during her lifetime. She was taken away. Later, some people said, uh, Oh, well, it's better you forget about your mother. I said, well, where is my mother? And I said, well, better you forget about her. She's dead. Marilyn thought that her mother was literally mad, and she spent her life being afraid that she was going to come down with her mother's mental condition. She was in the custody of her mother's best friend, Grace Goddard, and Grace put her into 11 foster homes over the course of her childhood and an orphanage. The orphanage was a traumatic experience for this little girl. Here's Hollywood historian Eliza Jordan. When they pull up in front of the orphanage, Norma Jean begins to tremble and cry and say, but I'm not an orphan, I have a mother. But her mother, of course, was in a hospital and was never really coming home. So I think those few years really shaped who she was. It was being uprooted from a foster family, trying to live with her mother and her mother having a breakdown, which resulted in hospitalization. And then the process of moving around with different families and then finally in an orphanage. Those few years shaped who she was as an adult. Um, well, it's bad to have uh, children from a institution like that go to a public school because in a public school the kids say oh they're from the home they're from the home mm -hmm. <laughs> i always tried to go around as if i were one of the other kids later on the county los angeles county took over my support and it was awful because they you had to go down first you, the woman would come around she'd say now Let's see, I think you need some shoes. And she would write down one pair of shoes. And then she said, I think you need two dresses, one for Sunday and one for school or something like that. And they looked like out of flower sacks. Oh, they were terrible. And the shoes, awful. And I would be ashamed. I'd say, I don't want them. <laughs> Marilyn was an exceptionally sensitive person. So her earliest feelings were of not being someone who belonged in the world and someone who had to look for their place to feel safe and to feel comfortable. She started stuttering again. She had a stutter problem. Most people don't know that. And after a while, they just saw that it was doing more and more damage, the people at the orphanage. And so they, they got her into another foster care system. But if Norma Jean's discharge from the orphanage looked initially like a blessing, it really turned out to be a curse. 
It was while under this supposed care of a succession of foster parents that the lonely, unwanted girl suffered horrific abuse, most shockingly at the very hands of those charged with looking after her. If the details make for difficult hearing now, one can only imagine the effect it had on the young Marilyn. Here's Lois Banner, author of Marilyn, The Passion and the Paradox. In several of her homes, the male foster fathers abused her. And she did talk about it publicly. That's how we know it happened. On numerous occasions, she talked about it. Back in the 1920s and 30s, a lot of people took in Forster children for the money. They were paid a certain amount a month to have them. And so there was really no affection for the children. And, and Marilyn was a pretty little girl and shuffled from one foster home to another. And she was abused. She talked about it later on. She, as a matter of fact, she's one of the first major stars who talked about being sexually abused as a child. And this was the 1930s when she talked about it. It was the 1950s. And sexual abuse of girls was always considered the female's fault. And so it wasn't considered terribly important. They had no idea about how it could ruin a woman's life. So she endured the sexual abuse. According to an interview Marilyn gave in 1954, one incident, when she was just around seven or eight, involved a man in her foster home locking her in his room and raping her. When she told her foster mother what had happened, the woman slapped Marilyn, shouting, Don't you dare say such things about that nice man. It added to her darkness and her complexity and her feeling of not belonging and her feeling of not being safe. And I think that what it did for her, one of the things that it did for her, was it set her on a lifelong search for her father. Many believe Marilyn's later problems with drugs and alcohol had its roots in these deeply traumatic years. And even after finding huge success in Hollywood, she would suffer from serious and sometimes debilitating mental health issues including a spell the year before her death, where she was committed to a hospital psychiatric ward. Perhaps the most extraordinary thing about Marilyn's reaction to her childhood abuse, however, was her willingness to talk about it. This was something that was incredibly brave in 1950s America. Hollywood historian Mark Bego. This is something that really was never done before the 50s. If something traumatic like being molested as a child happened to you, it would be something that you would want to keep under wraps. You would not want to remember this. And the fact that she told several biographers and magazine writers and newspaper reporters that she had indeed been molested, I think it was more of a point of powers in that I have survived this, I lived through this, other people can live through this. I think there was more of an empathy for other victims of sexual abuse. I don't think she was, you know, crying on people's shoulders to do this, but I think that when she admitted she was molested, I think she was doing so to help the victims. I lived through it. I'm Marilyn Monroe. I became a huge, a huge star. You can survive these things. The psychological scars of those early years would haunt her for the rest of her life, however. Greg Schreiner, president of the Marilyn Monroe Fan Club, explains. She never really had a childhood where she had a permanent home, which in a sense gave her a sense of, of, of wanting to belong and longing to be with somebody in a permanent way. And I think that also brought out a bit of an exhibitionism in her that I think 
most movie stars have to have a little bit to be a movie star. You have to want to be up in front of people and you have to want to, to be sort of showing yourself in a sense. It fueled a, a desire to be the center of attention. She had been a child that was ignored during her lifetime. She felt unloved as a child and she wanted to feel that love and appreciation as an adult. She had a fierce feeling of trying to protect the underdog. She knew what it was like to feel like there are no advantages. So she became a champion of people who at the time didn't have a lot of rights, which included women, homosexuals, African-Americans, and, and anyone who had been kind of downtrodden. And now to play. I didn't like the world around me too much. Perhaps most poignantly, these years of loneliness and abuse at the hands of a succession of foster parents colored the young Norma Jean's view of and attitude towards men. Most specifically, of the one man who should have been a central figure in her life, but who she never got the chance to know. Sometimes when Gladys was in between breakdowns and mental institutions, she would take Norma Jean and to live with her. And she would always show her a photo of a handsome man wearing a fedora, and she would say, this is your father. This man's name is Charles Stanley Gifford. And for the young little girl looking at that picture, he became a savior to her. Charles Stanley Gifford had been a co-worker with Gladys at Consolidated Films in the early 1920s. At around the time that Marilyn was conceived, he and Gladys had begun an affair leading his wife to divorce him, accusing him of abuse, narcotics addiction, and associating with women of low character. He broke things off with Gladys upon hearing she was pregnant, supposedly on Christmas Day, 1925. And despite Mortensen's name appearing on Marilyn's birth certificate, Gladys always believed Gifford was her true father. It is all too easy to see how for the lonely young girl, the idea of a handsome father waiting to rescue her was all too seductive a dream to cling to. He can come into her unhappy life and sweep her away and make everything good. So it was always her father that she was looking for. Because Marilyn didn't have a father figure growing up, she tended to like men who were older than she was, who she could look up to. When she was a small child, she liked to pretend that Clark Gable was her father. Later on in life, in her relationships, if you look at a lot of them, they were very often with older men, famous men, successful men. She was looking for that one figure that she thought would mean protection and sanctuary and a home. She looked for men that you were very much influential, were admirable, and she also liked to create father-type figures. She liked men she could admire and look up to and were considered heroic. But even with her husband, she would call them some version of daddy or pa. It really had a big effect on her not having her father in her life. It's interesting because when she became an adult woman, she tried to talk to Charles Stanley Gifford several times. She contacted him and he didn't want anything to do with her. He said, if you have anything to say to me, contact my lawyers. So it was devastating to her, and it just played into her feelings like, no one wants me, I'll never belong. This search for a father figure would come to define Marilyn's life with horrific consequences. Here's Gianni Russo, godfather actor and former close personal friend of Marilyn's. She wanted to be liked, 
is all I could say. The easiest thing I could say in a, one sentence, this woman wanted to be accepted. She didn't realize who she was, never did. And she let these people play with her. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, literally play with her. And then, you know, the drug problems and the drinking. She was just depressed. Always thing I say about it, she wanted a hug. And she got him from the wrong people who took advantage of her. For a woman who got a lot of her self-respect by looking at herself in the eyes of the men who were attracted to her, that's why people like Arthur Miller, the top playwright, a respected playwright, Joe DiMaggio, the top athlete, Frank Sinatra, the world's most famous entertainer, if they desired her, she must be worth something. It's sad that that's the way she felt, but it's true. That's really the way she felt. And of course, if you're searching for a strong, protective father figure to take care of you, then who was stronger and more protective in the early 1960s than the two most famous men in America? She needed John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, two of the most powerful men in the world, to want her. It took on a very, very deep significance to her. It wasn't like the others. It wasn't just a fling or a love affair or let's explore this to see where it goes. It was more like, you have to love me. I'm Danforth Prince. In 2012, on the 50th anniversary of her death, I published a book, Marilyn at Rainbow's End, Sex, Lies, Murder, and the Great Cover-Up. And Marilyn is said to have once talked to Jean Carmen, one of her female friends, and talk about, quote, I've had a love affair with America's most famous playwright, who was her husband, Arthur Miller. I've had a love affair with America's most famous athlete, who was Joe DiMaggio. And maybe if this thing with JFK works out, I'll have a love affair with America's most famous politician. Long before those famous relationships, for the teenage Norma Jean, it was to be another, now all but forgotten man who would provide a means of escape from the cycle of abuse and loneliness that had threatened to define her life. In 1942, aged just 15, she met James Doherty, a 21-year-old factory worker, and she saw a chance to change her troubled existence. The last foster care she was in was an elderly woman who was kind to her, but she was getting on in years and she couldn't take care of her anymore. Norma Jean was 15 and she had a choice. She could either go back into the orphanage or she can get married. The foster care mother who cared about her really didn't want her to go back into the orphanage. So she went to the lady next door who had a 21-year-old son and said, do you think that James Doherty would be interested in marrying Norma Jean? Everyone was sympathetic towards her, so the lady said, I don't know, I'll ask him. By now, Norma Jean was a very pretty teenager, and he took her out on a couple of dates, and he married her. On June 19, 1942, barely three weeks after her 16th birthday, Norma Jean Mortensen became Norma Jean Doherty. The newlyweds moved to Catalina Island off the coast of L.A., and for a while, were happy. We have unearthed a long-lost interview with James Doherty himself, in which he remembers that time. When we lived in Catalina, I'll tell you, she was the most beautiful person walking down the street. Everybody admired her. And she was so shy, so quiet, so nice. Wouldn't hurt anyone. She loved to ride horseback. Just loved to ride horseback. She loved to swim. And she liked target shooting. We used to go out with a 22 rifle and shoot cans. She got a big kick out of that. And she loved to fish. She enjoyed the outdoors very much. But she was just wonderful. I never, never at any time would say that there was anything but happiness. Doherty also recalled Marilyn's mischievous side, 
that would later entrance millions. Once a month, I would have to do the duty overnight. And I'd come home and I'd get home early and I'd knock on the door and she'd say, who is it? Phil? No. George? No. Fred? No, damn it, it's me, your husband. Open the door. And then she'd be hysterical when she'd come to the door. She thought that was so funny. Marilyn had broken out of the cycle of abuse that had trapped her almost since birth. Within two years would come another means of escape and a chance to fulfill not only her childhood fantasy, but perhaps even her destiny. After war broke out, Doherty joined the Merchant Marines and Norma Jean took a job at a factory making airplane parts. Eliza Jordan takes up the story. It was very Rosie the Riveter. She was spraying fuselages and making little parachutes and things like that. And one day a photographer named David Conover comes in and he's there to take pictures of pretty girls helping the war effort as a way to cheer up the brave guys on the front. And one of the girls he chose was, of course, this young Mrs. Doherty, who was a teenager. Marilyn really stuck out. She was not the typical young girl. She was really incredibly beautiful, even without trying. There was something very special about her. Uh, she did not have the blonde hair yet, but she had an amazing figure. Her skin was absolutely flawless, and she just radiated beauty, even without realizing it. And he takes some pictures of her, and he tells her, you're a natural at this. You should become a model. And that was pretty much all she needed to hear. This kind of radiation that she was giving out, I think is one of the reasons Marilyn eventually became who she was because photographer after photographer mentioned how it was amazing how she had this love affair with the camera. It was like an impact that no one else would have when they were being photographed. There was something very unique about Marilyn and she apparently had it from the very beginning since David Conover noticed that. If the camera loved Marilyn, then she loved it right back. Defying the orders of her husband, she quit her job and signed a contract with the Blue Book Model Agency. She dyed her naturally brunette hair peroxide blonde, painted her lips scarlet red, and threw herself into her work, astonishing the agency bosses with her positive attitude and her willingness to go the extra mile. Within six months, she had appeared on no fewer than 33 magazine covers. She went and got a modeling agent who was named Emmeline Snively, and it was Emmeline Snively's idea for Marilyn to dye her brunette hair blonde. She didn't just bleach her hair, it was a process of lightening and straightening her hair because she had very curly hair. And this was so that she would get even more work. She was a, a popular pinup model. She modeled for magazines and print ads. Blonde ambition? Of course, but also, first steps towards the realization of what had always seemed like an impossible dream. When she was a child of five or six, a lot of her foster care parents would just drop her off in front of the movie theater, like the Egyptian or Grauman's Chinese theater, and leave her there all day. And that was where she could escape into the movie. She would watch the same movie over and over again. And then when she got home, she would reenact the scenes from the movies. She would spend the day there watching movies and putting her hands and feet and the footprints in front and longing to be a star. And I would go in my room and if I had seen a movie, I would act out every part. Only I would act out before that happened or after. And I would act out all the parts, the men as well as the women. That's what I'd be doing, standing up on my bed, 
being taller, just the feeling. What he said and what she said and what he felt and she felt and usually be sad. And Marilyn's success as a model was not only down to ambition. When the camera focused on her, she was able to channel all of the heartache and vulnerability of her childhood, but also conjure up something else, something completely unique. It really was a kind of magic. She's someone who I think was very innocent, was very vulnerable, but was clever enough to create this image, create this career, and create this appeal or exude this appeal that I think all of us who saw her on screen really fell in love with. And people did really love Marilyn for the vulnerable side that she had. Yes, she could be a vixen. Yes, she was wounded and hurt. We all have sides to our personalities that is both vulnerable and treacherous. Cha-cha, she had it in spades. Norma Jean Mortensen, unwanted foster child, was blossoming into Marilyn Monroe, Hollywood's siren. Within a few years, she would be the most famous woman on the planet. But was she taking all of those childhood insecurities with her? On the next episode of The Killing of Marilyn Monroe, Sex and Success. In the days before feminism and many decades before Me Too, the movie industry was mostly run by men. You know, there was very few female executives or casting agents. So it was a male-dominated industry. And, you know, with that kind of power, corruption comes in. And so a lot of the young, struggling starlets who would do anything to have a break would fall victim to the casting couch. I think it was Claudette Colbert, the actress from the 40s, who said... Every actress who made it as a star at one time or another had to go through the casting couch system. And one of the unique things about Marilyn and her image is the fact that she was not only attractive to men who would view her movies and found her, you know, sexually appealing, but also to women as well. Because in Marilyn's films, although though she was kind of the ditzy blonde as a character, she would always end up winning. She would always end up either winning the man's heart, winning the prize, winning whatever it was. She always came across successfully. The Killing of Marilyn Monroe is hosted by me, Jackie Moran, executive produced by Dylan Howard, and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavor Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Carrie Budge and written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Doug Montero. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz and Sam Ada. Scoring by Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to The Killing of Marilyn Monroe wherever you get podcasts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.